actually, this is, I'm going to throw this at you, Scott, but you can turn it down as this was okay. a question that came up, but I didn't throw it into the mix. I didn't know if it would come in, uh, but it's kind of come in. Um, so we can always edit this out if you're not kind of wanting to go down this route. Uh, but right. Someone did ask about, obviously, I don't know if you saw that JP trialed RAR for a period of time. Oh, he was right. yeah. leaving some in reserve. So completely different, to, well, not completely, but it's kind of different mindset and going in there and training with maybe some more sets. Um, I don't know if you saw him doing this or had any chats with him or have any thoughts on kind of him doing that. And obviously he's, I think he's reverted back to his usual style. And I wonder if it just made me think of it, as you said, kind of be honest with yourself, if this just not isn't for you, even if maybe it's kind of a way that would work very well for you, like go with what you're going to actually be able to continue doing and kind of progress with. Yeah. He actually addressed that in, uh, in the podcast I mentioned. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I need to go talked- check it out. <laughs> yeah. It's a really nice podcast. Um, yeah. So he, I mean, I think he, he did is funny because I know some people who are like, what the fuck is he thinking? Like, what's he doing? And he had this conversation with Mike. I thought it was absolutely brilliant on his part. I, I, what, from yeah. what happened from start to end as to, he gave it a try. He saw the logic in it. He wants to eat as much as he possibly can out of his physique. He loves progression. And I'm not trying to speak for Jordan, but he did that out of, out of a desire to improve thinking, you know, I can keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but I, but I'm getting close to where, you know, you can only get so big and he's not going to be a thousand pounds of muscle where you just see two eyes popping out and there's nothing but muscle everywhere else. You know, he'd probably like that. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Like, like some like giant tick, like, you know, it's ready to burst. Um, so he tried it out and from what he, what he said, uh, he, he actually found, and because he was tracking things and paying attention that he was losing strength in the gym. And so he was his, I think he started to backslide physique wise. I can't remember if he said that exactly, but I'm pretty certain he said that he was starting to lose performance in the gym. He wasn't able to do the things he used to be able to do in trying to accommodate that. So he gave it a try. And I mean, he didn't like, he didn't try for like two years. Um, you know, or maybe a year. I mean, who, who knows? I, I kind of doubt it. Maybe it's possible that if he would have done that, you know, he, he would have backslid somewhat in terms of his strength performance and then slowly via a course of increasing volume and muscle endurance, maybe come back to where he once was if he'd given it months and months and months. That may be what, what Mike is would tell it. This all came out from a uh, podcast that he did. Was it your podcast? Yeah, we had them okay, on and they, so. yeah, they okay, yeah. basically, it ended up being, uh, Jordan interviewed Mike basically about his training and they just ended up talking back and forth. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So Jordan took that on. I think that was just, I mean, that's, I, I, I got in some of my bios that I, I have a, what I call a, a thing like in Zen, like a beginner's mind, what they call in Zen Buddhism, like basically, you know, as much as you may know, be open to new things as much as possible. And Jordan's pretty solid on his training philosophies. He knew what got him to where he was, but he's still open to new things. He gave it a go. It wasn't like all of a sudden now he backslid to, you know, 130 pounds. He's got to like climb back up and it just, it just didn't work for him. But mm-hmm. I, I have that, con- that concept is built <laughs> into fortitude training um, with before people were even using the term reps and reserve, I just called it, you know, one or two reps shy of failure reps in the tank with the loading sets. Um, and you know, that whole idea of effective reps, yeah. you know, has been out there for a while and there's, there's some logic to that and it's been criticized too as well. Um, and I, you know, 
I'm not sure exactly what you were getting at with the question, but I, th I think that there is something to say for accruing volume with sets that are not taken to absolute momentary muscular failure. And, and I think you can just see that because the proof's in the pudding with how many people who train and who, who have at least have great genetics who are really, really big um, who don't go to failure. It's interesting that we brought up Sasan because he got even better when he started training more in a way that, that Jordan does. Um, so the reps, that, the sets that I have, the, the, the sort of shy of failure sets or features of the set types in fortitude training are the loading sets where you stop one to two reps shy of failure. And then the only last one of the compounds would go to failure. But if you do isolation exercises, you can take those to failure. So there's not many really. You might do, as an example, let's say you're doing a high, the highest volume tier and you're, gonna, you're training thighs, so quads, hamstrings, and glutes. So you're doing like a leg press, a compound movement with a, a quad and a hamstring isolation movement tucked in between those. So you might do leg press, one to two reps shy of failure, knee extension of failure. Leg press, one to two reps shy of failure, knee extension or hamstring curl to failure, and then leg press to failure, assuming it's safe to do so in your setup. So you've only missed out on one or two reps. Plus, it's not exactly the most practical thing to take multiple sets to failure in the way you're doing that. And most people wouldn't. But I, I, think, there, I think there is value in that, and, I, and I've seen it in myself. And, and that was the idea is to crew some amount of volume and I think here's, here's the, the crux of the matter. And this is going to be something that's like, um, it's an interesting thing from a research standpoint because, and this is sort of going off on a bit of a tangent, but it all really applies, is that if you read so many of the resistance training research exercise study methodology sections, they just say, you know, all the sets were taken a momentary muscular failure. And you look at the Schoenfeld study and all the other higher volume studies and you're like, holy shit, that would just absolutely destroy me. Was it really the failure? Well, I think that like, if you submit something to, uh, that's a very concrete black and white way of like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about how each set was executed. If you just say it was to failure, it's to failure. But it's still just subjective failure. Yeah. So, and that depends on the person. Are you an absolute maniac who looks like they're trying to commit suicide each set? Or you're the average person who, when the weight starts to slow down a little bit, you're like, oh, that hurts. I don't think I'm done now. And you finish the set. So that gives you a black and white stopping point. Um, and if, if they tried to do research where they said, you know, we took the first, you know, all sets into the last one, one to two reps in reserve, then like now you've made something that really is wishy-washy in the first place because failure is, you know, it's not like they're absolutely, there's no way, there are ways you could possibly go in and they wouldn't be very safe and see if someone really is, is putting forth maximal effort. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting and bizarre things that could be done. There's a study someone asked me about not long ago that was done in 1960 where they, like one of the things they would do when doing maximal efforts is scream at the subjects when they didn't know it was coming. And you get an extra twenty percent. Kai and Steinhaus is in the Journal of Applied Physiology, nineteen sixty. They had starters pistols, guns, loud ones, you know, and they'd shoot those, scare the bejesus out of them, and get like an extra twenty percent. They gave them amphetamines, they gave them alcohol, the, all these things made people stronger. There's some disinhibition that's there. So there's like momentary muscular failure is really it, it's it's a black and white way of explaining it, but it really is not a black and white way mm. of of of, of ensuring the effort level. 
is truly at maximal because you just would, you'd have so much dropout if you tried to do that with everyone, people just wouldn't do it. And you would never get people would never be able to do some of these high volume training plans just wouldn't happen if they really went in there like that. They just have these sets of death set to failure. There's just no way. <laughs> so, you know, back to the idea is that um, I think, you know, you can, if someone's highly motivated, you can get some really good effort. Someone like you or me who, who's been training for a while, who really wants to and is highly motivated to push the limits and knows when, okay, you know, if I try to like this next rep is going to be, this is my last one and anything beyond that is going to be, no, it's not going to be a smart rep to try without a spot because I'm, I'm going to like get into an issue. Then, then that effort is probably, and like some of Eric Helm's work and some of the other work looking at reps in reserve is probably three or four reps deeper into the set than many people would do who are untrained. Cause I mean, they've done the studies where they say, okay, how many like give us yeah. your, you know, like 12 rep max. And when they actually like test them, they, they get seven or eight more reps. You know, they go way past that when you really push someone to its final end. So the reps and reserve thing, as long as you're being honest and you're highly motivated and you're pushing, um, is okay to do. And I don't know, I don't know exactly, I don't know the details of how Jordan did this. We did correspond a little bit about it, but if you're using a logbook and I mean, one, one thing you can also always fudge the logbook a little bit, you know, like if you want to get another rep, you, you can break form and a little body English in there. But if you have that log book um, staring at you at the, in the, in the eye saying, okay, you know, bring it, let's see what you got. And you know, part of your program is to stop one or two reps shy of failure, at least not go to failure. Um, then you've got a, and you, and you really are trying to beat the shit out of the log book. You've got a pretty high motivation brought on by just being an advanced trainer is motivated to make progress. And the logbook setting the bar for performance, but you also can't go to failure because then you've broken the rule of leaving at least one or two reps in the tank. So the logbook kind of keeps you from slacking and the reps in reserve of making it one or two keeps you from going to actual failure. So you, that's actually a way of sort of bookmarking or bookending the, um, the effort level and the stimulus for those reps and reserve sets, because you go too far, you actually hit failure. Like, nope, that was that. I I can't count that as being any improvement. I got eleven reps versus ten, but 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 I you know I got the twelfth one was a failure rep, you know, or I knew I was going to fail on the twelfth rep, so I didn't leave a rep in reserve. So my improvement there was not because I actually improved in any way, shape, or form. It's because I just pushed harder, deeper into the set. So then you can say, well, you know, that means I'm not making progress at this point in time. And you can then relate that back to whether you need a cruise, whether you need to drop your volume in some way, shape, or form, whether you need to make another adjustment. So I think you can, in the context of sort of somewhat rigid or controlled logbooking and record keeping, use that reps and reserve concept to, to basically make sure you get really, really good sets in there. And um, then you know, too hard, you fail. And if you don't get any more progress, the, the logbook tells you that as well. So, yeah, yeah so they can't, it can be used. And it, and it seems to work for many people. And it works, works for me, too, because this was actually the other point I was getting at, is that in that, like, two to three reps to, to, before failure and failure point, like, those are the, set, those are the quote, unquote, effective reps. 
but there's also a trade-off in terms of the stimulus you get versus what that does to your nervous system and mm-hmm. the related systems of the endocrine and immune and everything else. So you just, if you go to failure, that can like basically bring you down a notch for the rest of your workout versus leaving a rep or two in the tank. Um, depending on the person and the exercise, the day even, um, you can get a tremendous muscular stimulus and not have nearly the systemic stimulus or the central nervous system stimulus or inroad that you get when you actually go and have a failure rep. So that's an, that, that reps and reserve thing is, is it's highly, it's a, it's a highly variable situation. I think some people can go to failure again and again and again. And they, like this guy that I mentioned before, he, just the fact that he could tolerate all those failure sets and drop sets and everything else he was doing, he probably built up a, um, a tolerance to that over the years. And, and that was just built into his mindset and he didn't care about anything else. I don't think either. But some people can't do that. Some people, it depends on how advanced you are, the exercise, like I said, one or two reps, sets like that, and then that's it. So um, that's, a, that's a point of variability among people too. So whether or not they can, they have to do more of the sets that are reps in reserve or they can get away with more sets that are failure sets, that's another program variable that needs to be individualized to the person honestly to figure out, you know, what's sort of optimal for them to make progress. Awesome. No, yeah, really, really interesting. I think uh, when I had you and Mike on even, you guys discussed this in terms of kind of the stimulus and versus like this fatigue, that different kind of how close you are going to failure kind of brings for you. And I know, and you like you said, on the exercise, it depends. And I was just thinking, personally, I find it quite, it doesn't kill me as much to fail on an upper body movement. And actually I can end up failing before I know it almost like on a bench right. press or on a barbell row, I'll end up jerking it on the bench press. I'm like, yeah, I've tanked that. I'll either mm-hmm. have to, I just know I haven't got a rep left, but for legs, sometimes it's kind of like you can keep, I, at least personally, I can keep grinding, maybe not on uh, hip hinge movements as much, but for like, a, a, if I'm in a machine for a like quad movement, sometimes you can just, you can push further than you think you've got. And it's kind of interesting how that failure is almost like a, you think you failed, but there's a bit of mm-hmm. smudge factor and experience definitely comes into that as well. But particularly I find on like quads, leg press movements or like a Smith squat or something like that. Yeah. And if you really take those to failure, then you really pay the price thereafter. Yeah. yeah like you did a bicep set of bicep. That's why I consider the isolation exercises. You can take those to failure. Most of the time it's safe to do that. No problem. If you fail, you just drop the weight if you need to but you can't do that on a squat very easily. <laughs> At least not safely most of the time. So yeah, it's uh, it is, it is something like, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, you have to pay attention and, and set it up for yourself, whatever works best. So. And I think the log booking and that auto-regulation, it kind of leads you in the right direction, at least to get an understanding mm-hmm. of what you're doing and make sure you're on the right track. So that played into the, the previous qu- question and answer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All those things are interwoven. I think, I mean, literally, I think if you've got good goals and honest goals that are set up, you're, you're, you're doing a good job of being somewhat meticulous with your progressive overload. If that fits with your goals and you're auto-regulating well, you've got a lot. You, I mean, of course there's nutrition and rest and recovery, but as far as kind of from the training end of things, you've got, you've got all the pieces in place, all the big rocks, as you said, to do pretty well. I'm conscious of your time, Scott. Have you still got time to cover off a couple more questions or how you yeah, do? Yeah, I think we got two more left. Cool. Yeah, I think they're from uh, 
where are we? Oh, Andrew White. Yes. Andrew White has asked, what is your opinion on how big the gap in physique potential is between those with great bodybuilding genetics and those with average to subpar genetics? Uh, do you want to answer that before I go on to the second part? I, oh, I know, I know the second part too, but you, okay. yeah, you can read the second part. We can do it all at once. This cool. is actually could be a pretty, pretty quick one. Nice. Uh, and secondly, has he ever encountered anyone who has a non-responder to the bodybuilding lifestyle? So they do all of the big rocks, um, but they still just don't seem to get the physique that you'd expect from someone doing that. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say his name. We just, I just talked to the guy not long ago. He's, he may listen to this. Um, the, the, how big is the gap? The gap is like basically a hundred percent. There are people that just won't respond really well at all um there can be i mean usually sometimes they're they're talking about now is you're not just a non-responder overall like some people will get at least some aerobic adaptations and maybe not a lot of strength adaptation so they can make responses and and they can adapt in one way or the other but yeah there are it could be tremendous in terms of the gap some people just grow uh, like Think of the Brad Castleberry example I gave earlier. I mean, it was it was pretty. I you could see in some of those early videos when Dante mentioned that years ago, you could see like the guy spotting him, like when he's doing like these like literally he's benching more than the deadlift of any of the guys who were spotting him. You know, it's like those are his training partners. They're doing all the same stuff. They're drinking all the same supplements and doing everything else the same. But just he just has superior genetics, far and wide. So. It's huge. I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I, I actually clicked on Andrew's profile since you linked them all. And I don't know if he's maybe asking about himself, but um, yeah, there is, I have a whole talk that I give. I think I'm going to give this when I'm in Edinburgh at the end of November on uh, why you don't look like a pro. And um, I talk about biological inter-individuality, everything from Drugs, obviously some, some drugs can really mess people up, but just because of single poly, polymorphisms, single nucleotide polymorphisms in the gene for a particular, for metabolizing a particular drug. Um, food, there's tremendous variability in the microbiome. Um, there's a really cool study where they compared, I think it was white bread and maltodextrin in terms of the glycemic responses to a standardized 100 gram dose. And I show the, the, the figure and it's got, uh, it's like maybe 20 different individual plots from the same subject of both of those foods or the maltodextrin versus the, the, uh, the white bread. And the plots are like, for some people, the higher peaks on the white bread, for some people it's on the maltodextrin, for some people it's a nice smooth curve, it comes up, it comes back down, for some people it's jagged, it goes up, it comes back down again. They're all over the place. Everyone looks different. It's just like, you know, like one of those pictures of, you know, that you post, you see faces of the world and every face looks different. All the glycemic indices look different. All the, glyc the, the glucose curves look different. So, and the same thing happens when you look at protein synthesis and when you look at growth over the course of a training um, period, there are people who just do not grow, just won't grow. So, and that, that could be, you know, a lot of times those studies, are, they're not trying to optimize as a coach would growth with someone. So this kind of leads to the second part. You know, you may have someone who's in a study and they're coming in and they're trying to progress them with their loads and trying to make the muscle grow to evaluate whatever they're testing in the study. 
but you know, the person stays up at night and they don't eat anything. And like, you know, maybe they don't like to eat after they train. So their diet changes and they don't catch that because they don't even do a dietary recall. But there are, there have been people that have, I've seen that have spent years and years and years and they're, they're pretty close to non-responders. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of, kind of sucks for them, you know, especially if they're really, you know, a lot of times we want the things we don't have. Yeah. So that's the thing that they want it more than anything. Um, I mean, there, then there are things like antigen and sensitivity syndrome that, you know, some people would have, most people would know in that case, you know, they would be born biologically a male, but they would have, you know, obviously lack of development of secondary sexual characteristics. So it'd be pretty clear that, you know, they would, they would look like a girl growing up, although they actually be a boy genetically speaking. So, but yeah, it, it can, it can happen. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 I if, if Andrew's thinking of himself, I love to have him, you know, chat with me. There may be something there, you know, uh, it, it may be like that he's basically sort of a non-responder in the context of what he can possibly do. Right. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that we can, I did a charity event down at Ben Pakulski's MI40 um, gym, and he asked me a question that I uh, actually proffered um, a, something I noticed that he would end up talking about later on. And that is that a lot of the really good bodybuilders, and I mentioned this on one of the podcasts this week, a lot of the really good ones are um, able to go bonkers in the gym. So think Ronnie Coleman, who's trained like a madman, incredible recovery abilities. But part of that recovery is probably the fact that Ronnie was pretty, Ronnie's a pretty stress-free guy. And like Jay Cutler, if, if anyone's ever talked to Jay Cutler, mm -hmm. I've seen him on numerous occasions, like over the past probably 15 years, he guest posed in Arizona a long time ago always relaxed, always cool. You know, it's just, he's a pretty chill guy. Dexter Jackson's another great example. A lot of the really good bodybuilders are, are sort of have a mindset of being sort of relaxed and chilled and, and being recovered. Um, I mean like Jordan, for instance, is, um, you know, he gets pretty amped up and pretty driven and, and you know, pretty psyched up as well. But, but he also knows, and he's been able to engineer this into his life I've heard people criticize like, well, Jordan does eat, train and sleep. It's like, but he engineered his life to do that. Like mm. he loves this so much. Like he's made this into his profession. So he kind of earned that. Like he didn't, you know, he is not trying to do this while he's working a nine to five job doing manual labor, what have you. So, you know, if Jordan, Jordan probably actually, Jordan's actually pretty relaxed too, to be honest. You listen to him. He's a pretty chill guy. Yeah. He can just really turn it on in the gym. So he, he's not an exception to that more. I think about it. So that may be one thing I think that, that um, could be a more of a component than people think about is if you're someone who's just a little bit anxious, the cortisol levels just tend to be, you know, relatively high. You don't, you don't sleep well. Um, you've got a lot of fidgeting going on, like neat, like a lot of, you know, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Originally that was sort of, it was just defined as like the fidgety movements that people do that you wouldn't normally notice. Like they're tapping their foot or they're moving around. Um, but if you're someone who can't sit still, um, I mean, you can think of this if we just put a microscope on the, on skeletal muscle is that we know that when you, when you're exercising, when you're actually having the energy demand of exercise, AMPK is the energy sensor of the cell and that's turning off mTOR. 
Um, and if you compare literally just like on the whole body level, just standing up um, versus sitting down, if you're just standing there, your energy expenditure doubles. It's your resting metabolic rate. You're not really resting though. You're standing up. So if you think about then sort of big picture here, trying to get muscle to grow and I like to throw out this sort of number. <clears throat> if you can have enough of an energy surplus and the right situation so that you incorporate just eight grams of protein as contractile protein into skeletal muscle on a, a daily basis over the course of a year, that will give you like, because muscle is mostly water, that will give you about 20, 25 pounds of muscle mass over the course of a year. That's eight, eight, that's 32 calories worth of protein. Like eight grams is like nothing. I mean, that's like, it's like an ounce of meat. Um, so that, that is the, this is sort of the fine line in terms of creating the, the, the physiological scenario where you've got enough of an energy demand and or sort of energy surplus without that energy demand of moving around and doing things. Um, that someone might be basically creating if they're being fidgety and what have you, um, that they're missing out on that just doesn't allow them to grow. So if you're someone who, you know, you just need those, you get the protein in and you're eating the extra food, but you've, you're constantly moving around, you've got higher cortisol levels, and you're just someone who's you basically, because of your personality to some degree, you're almost putting yourself in the same kind of situation that like a construction worker would or someone who just has a job where they're like constantly having to um, move around, um, you may be setting yourself back there. So that, that person who has the other unfortunate um, genetic propensities to, to not put on muscle mass in various other ways, you can run down the list of, of reasons why that might be, is you know, missing out on maybe the 10 pounds of gains they could get if everything were optimized and they can get themselves, hypnotize themselves into being really chill and relaxed. So, but yeah, I think I, think I, ha I have run of those people who seem to be not, they put on it, they, what I've seen with those folks is that they, they'll have stretches where they gain, they make like 10 pounds of gains, and then they lose it really fast. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just gone, yeah. And Jordan actually said that, funny enough, in that podcast too, is that he could, he has, he, he has everything so optimized right now he can lose muscle mass really, really quickly if, if he just falters on any of the aspects of his lifestyle, of his drugs. He's, you know, he's got to use a pretty high level of drugs. Like when he cruises, he says it looks like absolute shite. It's like just garbage like when he comes off. But he needs to do that mm. so that he can sort of refresh his responsiveness to when he goes back on again. So, um, yeah, if you're, if you're someone who just doesn't have the genetics that Jordan does and uh, – and you can't put everything together optimally, you'll come across as basically having zero ability to gain muscle mass. You'll be, in, in essence, practically speaking, a non-responder. So, I don't know if, uh, Scott, you've heard of, I think it was, it might have been James Krieger who talked about this in that he said so they've, they're thinking that maybe sometimes some of the people who look like non-responders in some studies were just underdosed on volume in some instances, and they're the people that just need way more than you'd expect i don't know if you've seen that or you have any experience with that where people are just they just haven't maybe given themselves enough or they don't have the time to do as much as what's required for them I, oh i think that's totally possible i think you could probably be underdosed on frequency that's sort of what i've 
thought may be the case. Um, and I maybe even have gone through one of our podcasts, my, my rationale for that in terms of satellite cells and turning on their, their cycles. I can't I'm not remember. sure if we did or not. No, yeah. I'm not, I don't remember it. <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 not, I covered it maybe this in week together with someone else too already, but, um, yeah, without a doubt. So if you're, if you're just someone who for whatever reason doesn't, it leaves like, you know, thinks, thinks you're at failure and you leave five reps in reserve, you're going to have, and you're only going to do, you know, five sets. It's probably not going to get the job done. You're going to have to do more to some degree, or you may have to just train longer, or maybe you just, maybe you'd never be motivated enough to do that. So you, you may be, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Um, here's what I would like to see. And I'm trying to think I could go back and look at my data. So like what I used for my dissertation um, as a, a model of muscle growth was an isokinetic dynamometer. So basically it was set up for knee extensions and you'd start off with the knee bent, you'd have a one second extension and then a concentric, one centric, uh, eccentric. And then we'd, we ended up setting up with some rest intervals in there to prevent fatigue because the contractions were being produced with E-STEM totally involuntary. And in doing that, you override the normal neural inhibition that comes along with eccentric contraction. So we would get, we'd activate a certain percentage of the muscle and produce a really strong concentric contraction. The machine would let the knee extend until it got to full extension or five degrees short of that. So we didn't hyperextend. And then, and then the stem would stay on and the machine would force the eccentric back down to the starting position with with the result being tremendous force production, outrageous, like greater than what you could produce voluntarily with maximal voluntary effort, only when you're using maybe 70 or 80% of the muscle based on what we would get from the E-STEM. Because the inhibition's gone. Mm. E-STEM is just, there's no, there's no spinal cord inhibition, there's no voluntary descending input from the brain. It's all going directly through the nerves there at the level of the muscle. Um, so that would be an interesting way to test this is to take the brain out of the yeah. deal. I mean, if, obviously if you could do like a, a clinical ward study where you can control their food and everything else, but that way you'd have control over the stimulus. And I mean, what we, what I did is like, basically we started off with like 70% of an isometric MVC. I get enough current, put the pads in place, <laughs> have their starting strength set up voluntarily is the best way to kind of find a starting spot. Even then you don't know because the extent to which people can activate um, voluntarily varies and and the the methods that are used to evaluate that are flawed at least in my opinion um, that's a whole other side topic I guess but then you just basically progressively overload by increasing the current week after week and produce more force and then you know as long as they can hold in there and they don't like rip the electrodes off their leg um, you could then see like with that kind of, and that stimulus produces about twice the rate of muscle growth in the one short term study that was done, probably because there's so much eccentric overloading and eccentrics seem to be pretty important to trigger the, uh, the remodeling response. So you could do that, but yeah, I, I would, it kind of comes down to as far as, you know, Krieger's um, statement, I, I haven't heard him per se say that, but I've heard that notion is what you consider a non-responder. You know, and, and yeah. if you're hard, you're hardcore, you might say, well, there's, 
there's non-responders and then the responders were just pussies who just don't <laughs> want to train hard. And I'm, I'm being facetious. I'm not trying to call anybody a pussy, but that's what, you know, that's sort of what is there is that for some mm. reason, the motivation or the, the drive or the desire to do what's kind of a bizarre thing anyway, um, may be lacking, but yeah, I don't know. He does, but I think the, I think really at the root of what he was getting at is that there's some variability in, um, whether someone would do better with a higher frequency regime or whether someone would do better with a high, with, or someone requires more volume per se, all of the things being equal. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I, I think that's makes perfect sense that there's going to be variability in terms of the relative adaptations for across the volume spectrum, you know? So if you could get, you know, groups of people to sort of, somehow so so somehow standardize their effort um and have them train with 5 10 15 20 sets per week or what have you to failure um you would see some variability there but um yeah i don't know that's a tough that's a tough thing to follow there is no. a study by damas at al and i'm trying to remember the details now but basically they they tested out different frequencies of training like Wish I could have. Wish I would have thought of this before, and I could look it up with details. But one of the things that's in their results is that I think they had. I think they used a, a single leg training model. Um, I should probably pull the study up and, and look here. But yeah, here we go. It's right here. They did high frequency versus low frequency resistance training using data from a previous study within subject design. One leg randomly signed to high frequency five times per week. The other week, low frequency two or three times per week. And they sound, found variability in gains in muscle mass and strength. Um, and so the short communication highlights that some individuals showed greater muscle mass and strength gains after high frequency. Others had greater gains with low frequency and others showed similar responses between high and low frequency, regardless of the consequent higher or lower total training volume resulted whether regardless of the consequent higher or lower training training total training volume resulted from high frequency and low frequency respectively they have kind of a typo there um, importantly individual manipulation of resistance training frequency can prove the intra subject responsiveness to training but the effect is limited to each individual's capacity to respond to resistance training so somewhere in there that they're referring there to the fact that they found a a correlation um, between gains in the low frequency versus the high frequency leg. So the gainers gained well, whether it was low frequency or high frequency. And I would presume that, you know, that the same thing was going to, would be true of high volume versus low volume. The gainers are going to do best. So yes, that means then that if there's someone's a relative non-responder and he's doing a low volume training regime, just sort of taking the, what they found in the Damas study applying it instead of frequency to training volume, I think it makes sense to, to do at least speculate about that. You'd have, sometimes you'd end up with some people that come across as non-responders just to do enough training volume. Mm. Makes total sense. Now as to why, I don't know, but they're just basically relatively non-responders. So um, it would be interesting to see the thing too, that <laughs> you run into with some of these training regimes. And this fits back to what we we're, were at earlier is that, the volume is so high in some of these training studies, like the Schoenfeld study. I think, I think James was on that probably mm. an author. He usually does stats for some of those. Um, 
is that the, someone who's a non let's say someone was in that higher training group, they may have been doing too much. Right. I mean, you could actually, uh, in some degree, sort of misidentify someone as being a non-responder. And in fact, they were just over, over training, really. Yeah. <laughs> some degree. So I would love to see that studied more directly, though, you know. Um, and with this, this, this intra-subject design where they train one leg one way and the other leg the other way, it's nice. Um, you avoid some of the systemic issues, too. You're looking more at how well the muscle can adapt as opposed to like if you're doing squats and deadlifts yeah. and bent over rows, like then you're just destroying the person, you know, that creates a whole other issue, I think. And I guess this kind of actually comes back to your auto-regulation kind of suggestion in the first place in that you kind of, if you listen to your body and you look at kind of progression, you can identify if the volume you're doing is, and you have your volume tiers and fortitude, you can mm. kind of identify whether you should be going higher or lower or where you should be in that regard. Yeah, see, and that's the, this is, and this is something that Brad, on the podcast that he was on, the um, the Swoley Trinity podcast, which is no more, he was on, we kind of asked him about this, is we do, we do know in, in the comparison studies that autoregulation in terms of load progression, those sorts of things has its advantages, as opposed to like just a linear periodization approach where it's just like you, you're traveling down this road and come hell or high water. And that's what the study for instance the brad do it was like a um it was basically more of a basic research study versus an applied one they wanted to basically evaluate different volumes in terms of muscle growth and you know come kind of come hell or high water and it wasn't and he said this and of course people take those studies and i don't know how well how clear it was in the in the text of the study that that i don't know that they actually explicitly recognized that you know it was possible that some individuals would have had more optimal adaptations had we allowed them to auto-regulate and reduce volume over right. the course of the, the training study. They weren't, they didn't care about that. They weren't looking into that. They were just testing this, this concept proof of concept type of type of study to see, you know, what happens with the dose response when they have really, really high volumes. Um, and there's all the other side. I think you may have had Lyle on the show. So he, he decimated that study as better as well as anyone could. So that, that's the thing is that it's a, it's, that's the, that's where sort of the practice and the re research um, are difficult to intermingle because if you're trying to test, if you've got all this, these variations in responsiveness, it's all, all this individuality and your study is not designed to evaluate to what extent autoregulation or or, or to like literally test a program or a system that's incorporating uh, HRV, let's see, how well, how well if we, if we could do it this way. Let's say down the road we have some pretty really um, solid evidence of how to apply HRV to change training volume on the fly. So you'd have one program that's set up with a standardized volume and you'd have 20 people in there and some are gonna respond better than others in that group. And then you have the other group that does starts off the same way. And then they have then boundaries of higher or lower volume for looking at just volume as the one factor that could vary that will be adjusted according to HRV. That's a, I mean, I just came up with that. So that's a great study that, you know, could possibly be done in the future. But, the, but, the, but the, but so that's, that's a research design that isn't, that it wasn't being tested in Brad's study that isn't tested in many studies because they're just looking at things that aren't highly variable. 
And it's, it's kind of a conceptual leap to think, you know, like, let's try to create, um, basically you want to, you want to look at, um, uh, auto regulation versus a driven program. That's, that's a linear period, periodized one. Um, so those studies hopefully will come out once we start, you know, figuring out like that we continue to see these weaknesses with all the variation in people. Um, but it's totally, they're totally different research questions and you can't yeah. really answer both of them at once. You know, if you're going to test the volume, then you have to stick to that volume all the way through, but you can do a follow-up study, you know, do a detraining study and take those, take those people and identify them in terms of their responsiveness. And then, and then, you know, figure out a way to group them and allow them to use even varying ways of adjusting their volume, like use a combination, you know, system, PRS score, um, you know, muscle soreness upon rising, something like that. You can even measure like um, creatinine levels in the blood or who knows, like a million things you could do. CPK levels in the blood, I mean, a million things that could be done. So those are different research questions. But yeah, I don't know how we got off on that track. <laughs> um it was my fault to bring up James's studies or his oh, yeah, the suggestions the of the, the volume. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think that came from, he's actually, he had said he trialed pushing his volume up and was surprised how he grew right. versus he'd always kept his volume relatively lower. Uh, so he was like, oh, maybe there's more to this. And some studies then kind of showed yeah. a similar potential outcome. So, but yeah, it's, Hopefully Brad's got some of the, at least some of those sort of ideas in his head. I'm sure he has for yeah. future research. Well, you know, I mean, one thing, and I've said this before and I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not like trying to call, call someone out necessarily, but literally you can go, you can get so much from reading the research methodology. So like one of the things, you know, I get asked a good bit about is, you know, how can your average bodybuilder like dig in and get glean something from the research that's valuable? I'm like, well, get the studies read them as best you can. You may not understand all the stats or what have you, but you can read the methods. Yeah. You can see who the subjects are. Do they sound like you read the training plan? Does it sound like something you could get away with? Like, could you do all those sets to failure and expect to walk the next day? Probably not. So, but I would love, I would love to see, and you know, maybe eventually, I mean, eventually our media will get to where this could be the case. Um, I think I, I did this so long ago. I'm just giving me a, like when I did my, um, my master's thesis, I, my subjects were firefighters, and we did something called the Combat Challenge, which they used to have on ESPN. They had like an annual, like national competition, and the Combat Challenge is basically a firefighting simulated simulation obstacle course, where they they have to um, they have a dummy drag, and they have a, like a break entry task, and they have to they're in full full um, SCBA and the full full out turnouts. And they go to the top of a, a tower and they pull a hose up. It's absolutely like brutal. And I could have just sort of read through that, you know, this was like in 1995, but the news came out while we were doing the study and they filmed it. And I was able to get an MP3, which is like super high tech at the hmm. time, a video of the thing. And I played that when I gave my thesis defense to show what they actually were doing. You know, I would love to see like addendums, um, you know, or, or addendums to method sections where they say, you know, here's, um, you know, we just included 15 minutes of footage, you know, of actual training. Yeah. Like what's going on, you know, during these. So like, oh, so let's see, let's see this average, you know, person, 170 pounds doing their set of 10 
with a two and a quarter squat failure. You know, let's see how close, what's that actually yeah. look like? So you can get a sense of that because that's the thing that's, um, I mean, I know if, for instance, Jake Wilson's used to be here in town and he's another topic unto itself, but one of the things that they did a really good job of that I saw a few times and that makes a huge difference, it's actually been studied directly, is the extent to which the researchers motivate the subjects. So they would do like these Wingate tests and they were down at one of the gyms downtown giving those, they would, you could like pay to have them run you through the Wingate, um, the Tabata protocol ringer. And they were just going bonkers. Like there's just no way you weren't going to just go for it because everyone's screaming at you. Like it's the last thing you're going to do. If you don't do this, then the whole world's going to go up in a puff of smoke. So that was highly motivating. Or, or on the other hand, you could just stand there and just, you know, just, you know, sort of casually look, you know, half asleep and watch someone try to take a set. It's like, okay, yeah. you're done. You're at the numbers now. That's going to create a totally different, have a totally different impact on the training motivation. So I like that's super important. And like, as I've, you know, we talked about the reps in reserve. We know this, we actually know from the research that people, especially beginners, untrained subjects do a very poor job of really knowing how many reps in reserve they have. So, you know, having some visually, it might, it might like be, you know, opening up the, just looking under the hood to say, Oh gosh, no, we don't like things aren't going on as as clearly as they say they are. Cause like that set, like, that 10th rep that was supposed to be the failure rep looked just as strong as the first rep. That really wasn't a failure rep. So you have to take, so I don't know what you do with that. Like that would almost like could lead you to want to re- like go back and do the study again and really take them to failure. Cause what you're saying, the methods does not fit what's going on. But I would, the, the bottom line I'm getting to is I would love to see more like video footage if that could be done or just have an idea. And, um, not to like disparage any of the researchers the way they're doing things, but just I think that would clarify in people's mm-hmm. minds like what's actually going on. Because we have different people learn differently. Some people learn through reading. I can you know pick up things and read, and I've done some of this stuff and been following along with the research for so long. I know what it, I know what it means when they did this, that, and the other. Yeah, I've seen that done or I did it. Um, but some people have no idea. So some people, if they could see those things, especially if we're going to take this information and do what I'm trying to do with it as much as possible, and that's bring it out of the, the libraries, bring it out of Medline, out of PubMed, you know, out of the ivory tower, and then make it somehow applicable. And um, a lot of times, I think even like in most of like the, the, the lay bodybuilding media, you know, the, the magazines that are now online, that sort of thing, the, the people they miss the, they miss the mark and actually translating like really what really happened there. Right. They're just reading the abstracts and it's yeah. like, no, you got to read a little bit deeper. So the, the, what you see in an abstract is just one person's interpretation. And a lot of times I've heard this from many, many people. When you actually go in and dig, it's like, you know, I'm not quite seeing it that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I wouldn't have made that strong of a conclusion. It seems like there might be a little bias in, in your interpretation. You're fine to have it, but I'm going to take this information in this way. This is what makes sense to me. And um, that's, I think, the, the value in the research is not to have to swallow whole what you read in an abstract, yeah. what someone tells you is said. That's why people like Lyle are great. Mm-hmm. As abrasive as he may be by his own admission, he's wonderful to have around. He pisses off everybody. Yeah. But I'm glad he stirs the pot. You know, and even even if someone is a good pot stirrer and they miss with some regularity, I'm not saying that Lyle misses, but 
you know, it, even that's good because then it brings up controversy. Like the, yeah. the thing you brought with James Krieger is wonderful. You know, I think that's a, that's a highly relevant question to ask that he figured out ironically enough, wonderfully enough, cool as shit as enough by actually training himself. Yeah. You know, how cool is that? Yeah. He's a statistician too, right? <laughs> like they're as geeky as they get. Sorry, James. I don't know you. But, um, he'd probably, awesome. he'd be, he, I think he'd accept that. I think he's probably yeah, a, a right. proud geek. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that one. We Fantastic. <laughs> Have you got time for the last couple? Yeah, sure. We got here. We got Robert Dobby. He said, how long does Scott recommend sticking to the same routine how long for and how much you change your routine in terms of exercises and rep ranges? So I use, he obviously does, he doesn't fortitude train because those change every day. It's a daily undulating periodization. So I think that built into a routine is something you should have there. You know, you should be training with different rep ranges. It just helps so much. Like that's the one thing I, I, I think I'm, there are two things I really like about for well, one, it seems to work pretty well for people making bodybuilding progress, but a lot of older guys find with the stretching probably and with the, the adjustment of rep ranges and exercise selection, auto-regulating those things that their aches and pains go away. But almost everyone tells me they just love it. It's just fun because the things are so different. The variety is the spice of the training. So <laughs> in terms of exercises and rep ranges, that's changing all the time. Um, some exercises I think you should stick to, and this relates to the first part of his problem or first part of his question, um, stick to the same routine or stick to the same exercise. You can kind of answer them both in the same, same vein, as long as you're still making progress there, as long as you're still, still doing well. So if you've got a routine that you're making progress with and uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, Ronnie used to say, keep doing what you've been doing. You keep getting what you've been getting. Mm -hmm. And I think that holds, you know, to a large degree. If you get to where like, like Sasan was, for instance, it's funny. We've been on here long enough that I can kind of reroute a lot of our topics <laughs> yeah. and connect them. It's all really kind of one big, you know, thing. He probably, I mean, he was, he loves Jordan. They're great friends. They're great people. And, but I know, you know, he saw that coming. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, he's just loving everything they're doing. And then one day he woke up, he didn't want to do it. That burnout was on the, on the way. So, yeah. you know, like one thing I don't, and I haven't talked to Jordan about this or sauce either of them, but one thing that, you know, might be a solution if they ever, you know, if, if they get back together and try to travel that something like that same path again is to say, Oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do three weeks this way and three weeks this way. You know, so three weeks you can handle and you're, it's some, there's so much, it's, it's psychological yeah. really, you know, Jordan loves to train that way. Sauce adapts to that as well as anybody probably on the planet would apparently. He was just growing by leaps and bounds, but he doesn't like to train that way. So it's like the, like the ketogenic diet, like the standard, you know, kind of five, two ketogenic diet. when it first came out, I remember it was always like, um, it wasn't so much that the, the no carbs were just killing you. It was just like you could handle it because you knew like in two days you got carbs. It was just new, you knew that it was coming. So something like that, like with, with Sasan, he could do a training plan like that, you know, for three weeks like Jordan's way and then maybe, you know, go to two weeks or whatever would make sense, whatever would sort of relieve the pressure before he comes back on. So I would stick to the same routine as long as you're making gains, but don't, go so far like Sasan did to where you're like, 
you're like dreading it and you're not mm-hmm. going to want to come back to it. If it's a highly effective, but maybe not the most enjoyable, you know, and you've kind of balanced that all out in your goals, you want to enjoy your training and make progress, but not, not, you don't want to do optimize things so much that you're not enjoying your training at all. Yeah. And like one goal is subsuming the other one completely. Then you have to find some balance. But I think on, in most cases, most, most guys, and you know, cause you want, we want it all yesterday. We want, we want the gains now or before, if at all possible, they want to, they, they program hop just like people yeah. coach hop a lot. And it's a long, slow process for most people. Um, I think is this, this might be in my book. I was thinking about, I was listening to a podcast and like when I first, when I first competed, I, I competed, I think at 163 and then I was 169 and then I was 176. I remember these weights, like this is like each year, each two years and then 183. And then I did a few shows like 185, 188. And then I was in the 190s. And then I was, then for several years I was at 198 and I, but I was still growing and trying to fight my way down to 198 because that's the weight class limit. And then I, and then eventually I'm like, screw it. And I went 205 and then 207 and then 215, 212, I think. And then two, and then I ended up in the, the 215 to 218 range. And that was sort of where I peaked out, but that was over like 20 years. That was my stage data as it kind of went from um, the late nineties until a couple of years ago. So, you know, it's going to, it'll take a while um, to get there. So, you know, stick with the routine and get as much as you can out of it. Yeah. And the guys that can do that, like DC training was perfect for this. You could, you could, because the, the routine was simple enough. And one way to do in dog crap training, one way to do your widow makers, if you're doing sort of an, just the regular two way split. But if you're doing, um, there's a couple ways you could do widow makers for body parts to do a three way split. So let's say you're going to do, Widowmaker for your biceps because there's just whatever they're you're, you're gotten really big you gotten really strong but your biceps still relatively weak you need the arm work now at this point in time so you just take take an exercise and you pick a weight you can get like 18 to 20 reps with Widowmaker style and you just one one thing you can do if this fits with your mindset is you just do that same exercise week after week yeah or or, or every three workouts every single time so you, 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 and you'd see in the guys, Dante saw this. I saw this in the guys I trained with DC training, the guys that would go like 19 reps, 21 reps, 22 reps, 23 reps, 23 reps, 24 reps, 25 reps, 25 reps, 24 reps, 27 reps, 28 reps. It would hang in there and like, just keep on going. They got to 30 reps. Then they go up five pounds. And now they're back down to 21 reps and they, and you'd see like literally you, you would string, they could string together like 30 weeks of just micro progressions on a given exercise. That shit adds up. Mm-hmm. You're doing it. Let's say you do an exercise every three weeks. So you do it maybe 15 times in a year with some breaks in there and you gain five pounds each time. Just five, like that's two and a half pounds, like even two and a half pounds each time you do that 15 times. And let's say it's a, you know, it's a barbell exercise of some sort. So 15 times two and a half is like, you know, 37 and a half pounds or something like that. That's like, that's not bad over the course of a year. And someone's been training for a while. You go from, you know, like a 315 bench press to a 350 bench press, roughly. That's going to manifest. Yeah. You keep doing that year after year, even if it's cut in half. In three years, you've gone from 315 to 405, Maybe. That's huge. And that's just a little bit each time. That's just like gutting it out, grinding week after week after week. 
And that can be fun and cool as long as you're patient, you know, and you're doing everything else to support that. So that, that's sort of an optimal scenario with someone who's got kind of that grinders mindset. It just likes to go in there and, and really kind of enjoys the, um, the battle with the logbook. Yeah. That's why they mentioned that on the podcast with Jordan. People love, cause he's such a pure example of someone who, who battles the demon of progressive overload, you know, and with everything he has, he's like a hero, you know, he's, he's, he's the condensed purified version of all the good things about progressive overload, attacking progressive overload that we want to see in someone who's an Instagram hero. And there he yeah. is, you know, he's pure. Like he's, he's like, he's like the captain America of progressing overload. <laughs> you know, his, his ethics are 100%. He will always try to beat the logbook. Um, so that, 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 that's the thing that would guide you as much as possible, yeah. but not to the point where, you know, you're, you're doing what happened with sauce or you're just like, you're burning out on that, you know, that, cause that's the, that's the gem, the progressive overload, I think really is the gem of making progress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, tarnishing it over time in your own mind, then you're not going to want to come back to it. So, so San hasn't come back. I mean, hopefully he comes back. He's still kind of in the, I see him post every now and again, he's still around. So, um, you know, maybe eventually he'll, he'll, uh, uh, dust off the progressive overload thing and maybe apply it in a way that doesn't cause him to burn out. But yeah. that's, you want to keep that, you know, so you can use things like I suggest DC training, fortitude training, and, and one of John Meadows mountain dog training programs is mm -hmm. a great way to rotate. They're all kind of DCs at one end. It's like pure progressive overload, two way split. You know, you're not training a whole lot. This, the, the volume is lower thing on how you kind of do your warm ups. fortitude training. You can vary the volume really in between very DC like in certain ways, but it can be more Meadows like, especially with the pump sets and everything else. And then John's is a much higher volume training program. You can literally periodize over the course of the year, your training programs in a way and keep them fresh mm -hmm. and make gains with both of those, all of those. If you know, that's what you're, what you're doing and moving from one to the other isn't sacrificing the gains you could have made on the first one. If you're just like, if you're rotating through and kind of coming back to the same spot, like you're just sort of spinning your wheels, then that's for the sake of changing programs because you just have a psychological need to change programs and hoping that, you know, you can just keep on applying those different stimuli without doing all the other things to support growth. Well, then you're just sort of, you're fooling yourself, I think. Yeah. So that's a great strategy for someone who, who, um, who can has everything in place to really heart harvest the, uh, the very variability and the changing stimuli that come from changing programs. Yeah. That's got to be behind it also. Fantastic. No, I really like that. And yeah. that, that fits into at least it's becoming a, an idea that cycling volume through volumes is probably a decent idea over the long term, having some periods at lower volume, higher volume. And like you said, at least from a psychological standpoint, it's very refreshing because you do get probably burnt out from doing one approach over another for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I've got the different volunteers in fortitude training, and some people have got a few few people on my board who have been doing it for a long while, and they like, they know what they can do. So they they have they've come up with over the course of many blasts ways to do like kind of a volume ramp and then drop back. So that's essentially what the cruise really is. You drop back volume and frequency mm. a little bit. Just go to muscle round based workouts. Once you find that you're getting to that overreaching period, and you have to kind of feel out that that nebulous zone yourself the twilight zone the no man's land 
but you can also like structure that within a program. So, you know, like I can handle one week at this highest volume and then I need to drop back. But when I do, by the end of that week, I'm ripper and ready to go again. And I can just keep on progressing and you can keep on, you know, sort of waving your volume in that way. And that's just fun too. You know? Yeah. Fantastic. Have you got time for the last question? Yeah, sure. This is perfect. Should be easy one. So it was, uh, what health supplements do you take or recommend for assisted athletes? Yeah. So this is literally, this becomes sort of somewhat of a medical issue. So I, you can't really make yeah. the global recommendations are just, you know, gigantic. Um, I mean that they're like something like or, organ guard or liver armor or Himalaya herbal makes some, some products that have been demonstrated to be very, very helpful for the liver. That's an issue, of course, with, mainly with orals, with assistant athletes, if they're using those um, when they're dieting down into a show. But you want to have blood work and, of course, a doctor to support, you know, whatever mm-hmm. kind of things you're trying to apply. Um, just as an aside, one of the things, the kitchen sink thing is something I, I haven't seen a lot of these tested, you know, as to how the Himalayan herbals has some nice research behind their products. Um, Avana is one or heart care is one that seems like it's pretty well, they have a liver care as well. That's well substantiated. They actually have research that they've done and published, which is great. You don't find that in many cases. So a lot of times you'll see supplements with multiple ingredients having the same action. Right. They're locked in. It's like, okay, how much is too much? Um, you know, can we, how much can we turn on the antioxidant response mm-hmm. system of the cell? Do we need to have all these things doing it? And some of it could actually be actually interfering to a certain degree yeah. in the way that we talked about with that earlier question about melatonin. Um, I take curcumin. It's just got a lot of different, uh, the BCM 95, which is highly bioavailable. That's just kind of like a preventative prophylactic one. Um, I've got, I've always had low HDL. My dad had low HDL. So I actually garlic or aged garlic seems to help with that. I actually eat a lot of garlic. Like literally I've got a, I think I put like eight garlic cloves on my breakfast yesterday. <laughs> Your I friends must just, like you. <laughs> oh, well, I don't I have any friends. I can't smell me through the computer, no. so we're good to go. No, you know, I there used to be where I could smell that on myself, and now I don't smell yeah. it. And maybe it's just, you know, you, you don't smell the things you're used to. It smells a matter of a <laughs> in the odor. So you're probably right. No wonder I don't have any <laughs> Vampire-free, <laughs> at least. My social conundrum. <laughs> um, I, I ended up being vitamin D deficient not long in ago. In Florida. Yeah. yeah, I know. And I, I did a whole, oh, that's a whole, that'll just go ahead. I did a whole podcast basically on that. I figured it out. Um, it was maybe two months ago and I actually just did a retest and now I'm, now I'm at the very tip top of the normal range way up there. So I'm taking vitamin D. Um, I'm, I was taking a lot to get back up there. So I've dropped it back down. Once I got that test back, I've dropped it down to 10, assuming because I was doing, I think it was just a thousand I use in my multivitamin a day, um, which obviously wasn't enough. Um, so I've, I've got a, I found a 10,000 IU pill, which is less than what I was taking. I bought like the, like the kind of the big bottle to keep the price low. I'm going to stick with that for a couple months and see where I settle out. I'm sort of following my own. I do, I do a multivitamin. I actually do a greens formula too. Um, I do eat fruits and vegetables. I, on my low carb days, I'll add, I had like lots of onions and, um, cruciferous vegetables and those sorts of things. Um, and I have UC2 in for joints. Someone gave me some of that. 
I don't really have joint issues like I used to. It's funny. I don't have, um, I don't think I have any, I, I mean, of course I, ha I have all sorts of niggles that come and go, but I don't ha like my knee. I can, I can do knee extensions. Now I couldn't do knee extensions for like 15 years because it just killed my knees and I can do them now heavy. I have no problem doing them. I'm doing them at least almost every week. So um, I'm taking that just because someone gave me some of that. Um, and the UC2 uh, actually is probably works through the immune system. I don't know if you know much about the UC2. No. And the nature collagen type two. So it, it's just very small amounts. You only have to take like 40 milligrams once a day. And it, the idea behind it is that um, we all have, or many of us have sort of a, um, like a low level autoimmune response to collagen that leads to kind of progressive degradation or slow or general degradation of the, the collagen in our joints. And if you take the small amounts of this undenatured collagen and it will comes in through what are called the pyrus patches in our, in our gastrointestinal tract, which are part of the immune cell that the GI system is sort of the first, it's the big gate in from the outside. That's why our liver is there to detox things. You have this purse pass effect because literally your GI tract is actually on the, exterior of your body uh, that's kind of a weird concept mm. but if you imagine you had a, an apple and you cored it took the core out and then you could like look through in the core while well, you would say like the red surface of the apple is the outside of the apple but what where that core used to be like that surface in there that three-dimensional space where the core has been taken out is actually the outside of the apple right mm. so if you imagine then like that core being an analogous to, to the the GI tract from your mouth out the other end, that's literally the outside of your body. So anything you take in, like it comes from the outside in. I mean, you can do transdermals and those sorts of things, but the skin's normally supposed to be a protective layer to keep shit out. Mm. And you can come in through the lungs or as most drugs or many drugs get in, you can take them orally, but that's, that's the exterior of the body. So these pyrus patches are um, part of the immune system sort of surveillance of what's coming in. And if you, apparently if you, the research is pretty solid on the UC2. If you take take a little bit of this stuff, it'll come in. Um, the immune system recognizes like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's that's just a normal thing, a part of the, the normal biology interaction. And it, it desensitizes us to our own collagen such that this low-level degradation doesn't occur anymore. Hmm. And that's the best I understand the mechanism. So that's pretty much it for me. The vitamin D, I had a kind of a specific instance. The garlic I use curcumin actually does seem to help with um and i i have i eat a lot of fatty fish too omega-3 high fatty fish right. stuff with with hdl but i try to get as much of that as i can from from the food you know yeah. and i'm not eating a bunch of indian food so the bcm 95 is a good choice um and uh and the organ guard too um and i and i take i think half the normal dose of that so that's just it's got n-acetylcysteine Basically everything that's in Live 52, all the herbs that are in that. Um, I think it also, uh, it's got alpha lipoic acid um, and a couple other things that have, have antioxidant actions. And that's mainly just to work with the, um, to counteract the free radicals that get produced during normal right. liver detoxification. So and that's kept me in, in pretty good stead. So, but yeah, there's a whole, like, like I literally would suggest when people ask me these questions, go to examine.com. Right. Um, or even download their, you know, their, their guides. If you want, yeah. they've, they've got, um, they've done such a great job over there of, of compiling and continuing to update on 
the relative effects and the studies they've got, they got it kind of broken down to like a matter of fact, you know, what's the strength of the evidence yeah. um, for garlic or for curcumin or for fish oil or niacin or what have you on some particular health factor. But um, if you've got a, you know, this question, it's like, I always get a kick. It's like, you know, it doesn't, does it really matter? Like what's Scott, how much does Scott squat? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I, I, I squat 495 for 10. So you should go and do that today. It's like, well, that would, no, that's not going to work for me. Or like, that would be nothing for me. It doesn't really apply. It's really what you need yeah. um, personally. And like his diet, if he's on a keto diet, could be very different than if he's meeting, like he's a vegetarian. For right. instance. Those are completely yeah. sort of a two kind of polar opposites in terms of, in terms of the micronutrients that are missing or need to be added or supplemented potentially for many people. So, um, without him knowing everything that I do, like that doesn't really tell much, but I've got some basic supplements and, and basic strategies in yeah. my, in your, in my book. Um, and I, the way I sort of look at it is if you think about, obviously you've got, you want cardiovascular health, you want liver health, you want joint health, you want digestive health. Um, cause all those things are sort of involved. You obviously your heart, if you're, if you're someone who's assisted, you may be, your lipid profile could be off. Your liver is going to be taxed by things. Just eating all the food that we take in as bodybuilders many times can screw up the GI tract. So some GI health is there. The loading is going to tax our, our joints as well. So taking care of the joints. I use, I have hydrolyzed collagen in, it's an additive in true nutrition. They can throw it in with your protein. So, um, it's funny the the hydrolyzed the, the amino acids from hydrolyzed collagen. This is different than the undenatured collagen type too. Just basic collagen that's been been hydrolyzed. Those end up making their way into the collagen structures of the human body. So you actually like as sort of earthy, crunchy, bro science as it sounds, eating collagen ends up bolstering collagen, ends up going where you want it to. Um, and then of course there's ergogenic aids. I throw creatine in and I have right. some beta alanine and I've got a bag that I'm just kind of using up and I use some adaptogens too. Those aren't really health supplements, so to okay. speak. So those are like ergogenic aids, adaptogens, maybe nootropics for someone, sleep aids, yeah. joint, cardiovascular, liver, and digestive. Those are like, once you kind of got all those big categories taken care of, unless you got like an anxiety issue or something like that, you've, you've, you've covered most of the major bases and what you would need to choose from as far as supplements depends on how bad off or how good you are. So if, if your liver, if liver is great and your heart cardiovascular is awesome and you're eating, you know, you're not deficient in any essential fatty acids, you don't need to take like five, you know, cardio tone and your blood pressure. Yeah. You don't need to take all these things, you know, you're good. So what I do doesn't matter. So, Anyway, I think that point's been made. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I think it's, it, I do, do the same thing. It's kind of like, if you really want to know, you need to have the blood work done and hopefully yeah. you can, that will probably save you money in the end because people end up, like you said, buying things that they don't necessarily need. Yeah, it's funny. Like some people, um, I get lots of, so often the question is a very generic one like this. And of course, Rob's, and he may be just asking this pure curiosity, but what people really want to know is what they should take. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, so, it's sometimes, so some people don't care. They just come up and they just like, how about me? Let's talk about me for an instance. And let's, I don't care about you at all. And they'll just launch into their questions, <laughs> but I don't mind that. That's kind of what I'm here to do for the most part is try to help as many people as possible. But that's the real, 
that's where the real juicy stuff is. If, you know, Rob or whoever would ask that question, say, you know what, I've got a family history of heart disease. Yeah. I'm thinking about doing this, that, and the other. I don't have a great lipid profile. Am I being stupid in your opinion, you know, or should I do something differently? You know, what fits my situation is really the much more important than, you know, any generic list of things that I could throw out. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Scott, I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on. Um, welcome, man. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and go through all the questions and just dive into things and have a great chat so i want to make sure people know you just said you're coming to edinburgh soon so i'm uk based so i'm sure we have a load of people in edinburgh hopefully listening to this so they might be able to go find you there and you obviously mentioned um a couple of your books so we'll make sure they're all linked below but important when's edinburgh and uh where are you going to be it's uh lift gyms the lift gym um traperformance.com oh yeah yeah, Paul, Paul and Lee are putting this on for me. Actually, Brad Schoenfeld's there. I think he's speaking maybe tomorrow um, with them, through them. And we've, I'm doing it. I think we call it a fortitude trading super seminar or something like that. Okay. So the first day is already filled up. It was, um, it's basically my fortitude training camp. And the second day I'm doing a number of different lecture seminars. So like one of them I think is on the why you don't look like a pro and and some gym, in the gym stuff on the mind muscle connection, things like that nature. So those are still available. Awesome. Um, but we booked the, the full two day package. Amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and yeah, the books are fortitude training, fortitude training.net. That's the $20 ebook and be your own bodybuilding coach. B Y O B B coach.com. And that's basically, it's a brain. I referred to a lot because it's, I can only talk so much and it's a, it's a pretty lengthy book. Yeah. There's a lot that, in there. Yeah, it's got 2,400 some references, something like that. So if you can get the Kindle on Amazon, you can get the hardcover on Amazon, or you can get the PDF at my website. And the Kindle, the electronic versions are all completely linked. It's kind of like what they do at examine.com, which is very cool. You can go and you know click on the links yeah. and it'll show you the studies. So I, I set up the hyperlinking in, my, in that ebook in that fashion. It's the same way in the Fortitude Training book too. So you can go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole if you want and bounce around the ebook and topic to topic as the questions occur to you fantastic scott again thank you for coming on and uh thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you soon